All right, welcome everyone to a uh, special episode of One of Two Hundred, the independent uh, New Zealand and national politics podcast. Uh, I am your host, Branko Machetic. Uh, we have a great guest today to uh, talk about the election in Brazil. We're, we're used to elections in New Zealand and, and watching elections overseas uh, being very exciting, tense, but I think it's safe to say that uh, nothing really quite compares to the uh, roller coaster that the Brazilian election has been. Uh, so far, where the far-right incumbent, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, is uh, effectively at this point neck and neck uh, with uh, with Lula da Silva, the, the country's former president, uh, its most popular president, who left office with uh, an 80% approval rating. Um, and yet somehow, uh, uh, which may be uh, strange to us watching from New Zealand, uh, Lula is is now fighting for his political life and perhaps the political future of Brazil and Brazil's democracy. Uh, so to talk to us about all of this and explain what's going on and, and, and the context for it, uh, I have here uh, Sabrina Fernandez, uh, sociologist, Jacobin contributor and host of Tazi Onze, the uh, YouTube channel, the Marxist YouTube channel. Uh, Sabrina, how are you going? Um, thanks for having me, Branko. That's the, thanks for the invite so I can get people a little bit more informed of what's happening in Brazil and how it's going. It's hectic. It's pretty intense right now. Um, there is a pretty good reason that we wanted to win in the first round. We wanted Lula to get um, the majority in the first round because we knew that the second round would be tougher and it's actually worse than we imagined. So, uh, yes, we are fighting for the polit political life of Brazil. We're fighting uh, for uh, more of a chance to develop the democratic rights because we know that if Bolsonaro gets reelected, he's going to feel very legitimated to do even worse uh, because he did have low approval ratings during his first mandate. Uh, we thought that maybe Bolsonaro wouldn't stand that much of a chance, but right now he's making a pretty strong comeback. And if he makes this comeback, we know that the next four years are going to be worse than the last four years now. Yeah, sobering, sobering stuff. Um, and I mean, for people who haven't been following this or maybe, you know, have just seen it in the background uh, while, while they've been uh, watching other news or just living their lives, can you give us a sense of, of I guess, the, the, the campaign leading up to the, the initial uh, uh, voting uh, and what the result was? I mean, it seems like a lot of the polling was catastrophically wrong, which is certainly not the first time that we've seen this in a, uh, in a modern election, but it seems like it was particularly bad uh, in this year's one. Yes, well, what happens is like this. Bolsonaro uh, decided to run for re-election. We already knew this was going to happen. This is very common for, for uh, Brazilian presidents to go for re-election. But he did have low approval ratings during the pandemic. So he was uh, at about like 30% approval. So we knew that he wasn't as popular as he was when he got elected in 2018. Uh, Lula is now uh, like the, the, the big uh, candidate for the left. But we must remember that in 2018, Lula was in prison. So Lula had been persecuted uh, through the Lava Jato investigation, uh, going after him for corruption charges that later um, they were found to be basically bogus because the judge in the case, Sergio Moro, had political motivation. And Sergio Moro ended up being Bolsonaro's justice minister 
And uh, just uh, how it happens in Brazil in terms of the roller co coaster is that uh, Moro, this judge, actually left the ministry because of a fall falling out with Bolsonaro. But now he's back with Bolsonaro. In fact, uh, during the debate um, a couple of days uh, back, uh, what we actually had was Moro right by Bolsonaro's side. So he actually returned. So this just shows how much of a fraud the process was. But in 2018, Lula wasn't running, so we had Adagi running. Adagi was a strong name, but not as strong as Lula. And with Lula, we thought, oh, well, now he's out of prison. He made a pretty serious comeback, so this is something quite impressive. Uh, and he he's been the favorite, and like in the first in the first place in the polling from the beginning. But uh, over the past over the past days, things have gotten tougher and we know that fake news are a big element of that uh the role of religious leaders are particularly coming from the fundamentalist evangelical side is also uh quite strong and bolsonaro has a lot more money going in these campaigns so like the big uh in brazil corporations can't donate directly to campaigns anymore but the billionaires can so billionaires have been putting a lot of money into this so there's money from agribusiness there's money from industry and this uh, is making a huge difference, especially when we look into the amount of ads and the placements in social media. So uh, Bolsonaro has a very strong base when it comes to the online campaigning. Uh, and this helps to feed in terms of distrust and fake news and uh, people just um, buy into anything that's coming from the conservative side. But we also know that Yes, Brazilians are turning more conservative. They're more distrustful of politics and they tend to go uh, more right-wing in that sense. What worries us when, when it comes to this is that uh, we're still not quite sure what happened to the polling. <laughs> so we know that the state of Sao Paulo, which is the um, most populous state of Brazil, was also the wealthiest state of Brazil. Uh, it's mostly responsible for, for the skewing of data. Uh, we have some idea that part of this is related to an unprecedented, unprecedented senior vote. So in Brazil, voting is mandatory uh, up until you're 70. Afterwards, you don't really need to vote anymore. Um, but when I say it's mandatory, it means that, well, if you don't vote and you don't justify that you didn't vote, that you might not be able to get a passport and access to some services, but actually, like the fine is ridiculous. It's like uh, it's like a couple of reais. So people who don't vote, they just go and they justify it later. We had a very high abstention rate because of this. So we're talking about like about 30 million people not going to vote. Uh, for the first round, this is really bad because we had tons of candidates. It wasn't just Lula and Bolsonaro, so we had a lot of other options. So people not going out to vote in the first round means that well, they really don't feel represented by the electoral race. And then, so the abstention is something that affects the, the polling. The senior vote affects the polling also because we know that this year in particular, uh, and this is a very specific thing, uh, seniors will be able to show their um, voting proof. So like the, the ticket that you get after you vote as proof of life to receive your pension. Right. Because instead of having to show up to show that you're alive and you should re receive your pension for a year. So we had more seniors going out to vote. But in one of the materials coming out from the Bolsonaro campaign slash government, because things are so enmeshed right now, 
Um, they actually said, yeah, this is proof of life, so go vote for Brazil, vote 22, which is the number for Bolsonaro in the race. So we also know that, well, right there we have uh, electoral tampering, uh, but the Supreme, um, like the, 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 the court that's responsible for the electoral race, which is the uh, Supreme Electoral Court, really didn't do much about it uh, besides suspending the video, saying that, well, we shouldn't, that you can't show this video anymore. So they've been very light on things for, for a while. Uh, they've been very light on the level of fake news. We know that Bolsonaristas um, don't tend to actually answer to the to the polling. So if the poster is coming, like, I don't want to do this. So there's some level on the representation. So it's very hard for the polling industry to actually allocate for all of these variables. So uh, this makes us uh, very worried right now because we, we could have like talking about like how polling went wrong in Chile when it came to the constitutional vote. Uh, we already knew that it was hard for the approval side to win, but we didn't know it was going to win so, uh, uh, going to lose so badly uh, as it did. And in terms of Brazil, what we know is that in the first round, the numbers for Lula were within the margin of error. So there were some polling saying that he could win in the first round, but also like if you just uh, bring down the two, per two percentage points, this is about what Lula got, a little bit over 48%, right? Um, but it was Bolsonaro's numbers that were way higher than we expected. So the gap wasn't as large as we wanted. Uh, and the other reason for this is because people who would have voted for other candidates, but they're very anti-Lula and do identify a little bit more with the conservative, conservative side of things, decided to go with Bolsonaro right away to maybe prevent Lula from winning the first round or to show that, well, it's not going to be that easy for you. So many different elements here. Well, you mentioned uh, Sao Paulo, and that, that was where Lula got his political start, right? Um, and I, from what I understand, it was a bit of a shock to them that they that they lost it to Bolsonaro as, as, as badly as they did. I mean, and, and it seems like also the campaign is kind of now rethinking some of its strategy or looking at how to, I guess, change its messaging. I mean, is there self-reflection within the Lula campaign about things that they might have done differently? What do they think were the kind of deficiencies of their campaign that, that may have contributed to this result, besides all the, the, the things that you've just mentioned? Yeah, the state of Sao Paulo is sort of split. The capital votes more progressive and the uh, interior side, like the rural side and the, the smaller uh, cities, even around industry, tend to vote a little bit more conservative. So in the area where Lula made his political career, uh, you would have a couple of towns where the PT does quite well always and one that tends to skew more to the right. Um, but there are some areas in the periphery like where like poorer, uh, poorer communities where we did expect PT to do better than, than it did. Um, we know that, you know, the results coming from the south of the country would, would be quite bad as well because the south tends to go more conservative, whereas the northeast, uh, where Lula is actually from, uh, that doesn't feel represented by these, you know, same old politics coming from the industrial states, um, Lula did quite well. Uh, what we understand is that well, there, there was some underestimation in terms of not just the polling, but how people would uh, react to how bad Bolsonaro was for the past four years, right? So this idea that, well, we had about 
700,000 people dead from the pandemic, knowing that this is a candidate who didn't show any empathy for the dead, who called it a little flu, who stalled uh, buying vaccines. All of these things, people thought that that was going to have more of an impact. The economy is doing quite badly, so we have issues like inflation uh, is pretty bad. Uh, if you go to the supermarket, you know, basically the minimum wage in Brazil is already a minimum wage of poverty, and it's even worse right now. So there was, there was this expectation that the material reality of Brazilians would lead Brazilians to reject Bolsonaro. Um, and now we're quite sure, as that, like we can say with a lot of confidence, that even the campaign understands that the material reality is not what's communicating things right now. There's a lot of manipulation and the level of consciousness is actually quite tied to like this conservative ideology, moral panics, that, you know, anti-communism. So it's not just being anti-PT or being anti-Lula, it's rejecting the left and uh, this idea that, well, if the left comes into power, uh, they're going to make it easier for people to to um, get into theft and robbery, and then you're going to lose your phone and nothing's going to happen uh, to them, and gender ideology in the schools, and they're going to force little girls to be in the same bathroom as grown men at the same time, things like that. So like all these panics, they go around together. Sometimes the fake news are even imported from the US. So we've been tracking some things about for example, um, um, Prop 47 in California many years ago that changed uh, the, the status of some certain types of crimes in California. And so, well, if you if it's um, theft up to, uh, I think, like $950, then you're not going to go to prison for six years. You might go to prison for one year or you might go into community service or things like that. That's being used um, in Brazil to say that California actually legalized theft up to $950 and Lula is going to do the same, right? So this is the, it, it is, it's like, if it wasn't such a tragic situation, it would be funny because this is how absurd it is. But this is how it's operating and all the time we're having to reinvent ourselves during the campaign work because fact-checking is not enough. The problem with fact-checking is that we usually, um, we, we can actually show the truth, but it doesn't go as far. And the Bolsonaro campaign is always betting on knowing that once they insert something out there, that's going to travel a lot faster and farther than the truth later on. So they might as well, they're not worried about the fines. They're not even worried about uh, the Supreme Court telling Bolsonaro that, well, now the campaign needs to insert certain um, parts from Lula during your official time on TV. So Lula can say that, well, it's not true while you're calling me and things like that. Because they know once it sticks, it sticks, people just don't trust it. We've been dealing, for example, with data around the Amazon. And very slight manipulation here, right? So Bolsonaro has been awful on the Amazon. Uh, one of the reasons that he arrived and he already slashed all of the resources for the Minister of the Environment resources for um, fighting fires in the Amazon, resources for fighting climate change. And uh, with this, we've had consecutive years of the rate of deforestation really going up. So this is the Amazon that's been going through deforestation since, you know, the early years of colonization in Brazil. So we're already, you know, really pushing that tipping point of this biome. Um, when Lula arrived in 2003, 
the deforestation rates were way higher than they are today. But he implemented a program to lower these rates to the point that, yes, for the first years, the absolute numbers, they were high, but then the deforestation rates started dropping massively. And then it got to a lower point with the Juma mandate, also from the Workers' Party after Lula. With Bolsonaro, this started rising very, very rapidly. But yes, the absolute numbers, they're still lower than the first numbers coming from Lula. Because Lula got, when he arrived, the situation was absolutely out of control. Bolsonaro has been using this to say that, see, everything's a lie. Because deforestation was higher under Lula than it is under me. So now we're at a point that we're having to teach people how to read graphics. Having to teach people the difference between absolute numbers and the deforestation rate and showing that somebody arrived and the, you know, the house was a mess and then they started tying it up. So they had politics to reduce deforestation and the other one arrived and the house was sort of tidy. And no, uh, the idea was to actually increase deforestation. So how it is very hard to have to explain basic things of logic during the, the campaign, when people are just like, no, no, no. The point is that Bolsonaro is right because Lula's numbers were higher. Well, manipulation of data, culture war stuff, anti-communism crime sounds uh, eerily familiar yes. uh, uh, when you talk about talk about it compared to, to other elections. I mean, I'm curious, obviously, Lula was freed from prison um, over these trumped-up charges. But to what extent is that uh, still a factor in this campaign? I mean, to what extent is, is Lula hobbled by um, memory of, of the fact that he was in prison? You, you talked about the fact that, that some of this, this drive towards believing this fake news or, or you know, abstaining from voting is kind of um, uh, rooted in people's disillusionment and disengagement from politics. Is, is, is that element of the corruption in Brazil and the corruption charges against Lula in particular that, that have helped to um, feed this kind of um, uh, apathy or, 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 or dislocation? Yes. In, in fact, one of the, one of the um, changes uh, this week is that, yes, the, the court has allowed Lula to have these um, uh, inserts of like uh, 30 seconds here and there during the Bolsonaro campaign because the Bolsonaro campaign was calling Lula a thief. And because the charges were annulled and Lula is considered innocent nowadays, Lula got uh, these, these um, right to reply to this on television. But, well, when you talk to people, so I've been involved in campaigning both online and in the streets. And when you talk to people, people, like, people just tend to say, nope, he's the big, biggest thief of all. Uh, he's the one that took everything. He's super rich. So this whole idea that Lula is like a billionaire and like he took everything from public um, from uh, the public money and is so rich right now. And this is why like you can go along with him. And then they mentioned usually a corruption scandal that happened under Lula in his uh, in his earlier years as president, which is called the main salon. Uh, which was uh, a scandal basically to allocate money to, to certain people in Congress so they could vote with Congress. So it was a corruption, corruption scandal, was investigated. Um, leadership from the Workers' Party got arrested, went to prison, and all of that. This is many, many years ago, right? So we're talking about almost two decades ago. Nowadays, Bolsonaro has the biggest corruption scandal under his government that he's, he is directly involved in, which involves basically taking 
the we're talking here about billions of reais out of the budget coming from the federal government and just allocating this into this um, budget pool that's under the control of the, the leadership of Congress. And they basically can just like give this money to anyone in parliament and they don't have to say who and they don't need to say exactly what for and they don't really need to go there and check it out later. Right. So this is allowing uh, people in parliament, so like the, the allied base of Bolsonaro, to basically take money and put, take it back to their state and put it anywhere and then come back and say that, no, we allocated this money to, you know, for teeth removal in the public health sector. But when you look into, when you actually go and you dive deep into this, you look into the numbers and that would mean that, you know, for that money to have been used across, you know, for two months in that really, really small town, they would have had to have removed 14 teeth out of the mouths of every single citizen in that town. Right. So this is the lab. This is one I'm, example. I'm not a dentist, yeah. but that, that, that seems like something no, you should Including, do including toddlers, okay? Including toddlers and newborns. <laughs> right? Right. So this is how absurd. Uh, it is. So now this is being investigated, uh, but it's being investigated in the sense that, wow, this money is not reaching the proper destiny. But this is actually the rule. This is what happened. And this is called a secret budget. And because of its name, people are saying, no, this is just how Congress works. Just how Congress works. This is way larger. We're talking about 10 times, 20 times more money being taken away from the public budget and being directed uh, at these very corrupt politicians 10, 20 times more than any of the previous scandals. But it's not sticking with people's head because the association coming from the mainstream media, coming from the far right and the traditional right in Brazil for so many years is that the only corrupt party in Brazil is the workers party so it's very hard to deconstruct that and the mainstream media is like going wild with this because if you stop to watch any of the news shows in brazil it just looks like an extension of the bolsonaro campaign yeah i mean it's one of these interesting things that uh, uh, corruption scandals scandals around integrity and dishonesty it seem to, to to hurt the the candidates that that tend to be more honest, or at least, you know, risk their campaigns on that. The, 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 the candidates who are politicians who are openly corrupt, um, for whatever reason, are able to kind of fly by, similar to, to Trump, I guess, where people just go, oh, well, they, they acknowledge they're already part of this terrible system, whereas this person's, I guess, lying to me and, and, and putting up a, a different sort of face. Um, I mean, yeah, a, a tragic part of, of, of modern politics, I guess. I mean, but to turn to, to Bolsonaro, I mean, beyond the, 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 this element of corruption, I mean, give us a sense of what he's actually achieved. I use that term loosely uh, over his first term. And then what explains his appeal? Because, I mean, I guess similar to Trump, there's an entertainment factor here where, where Bolsonaro is so outrageous. Um, I mean, certainly as horrible as he's been, I think people, uh, uh, you know, in, in New Zealand and, and, and other parts of the Western world have sort of 
enjoyed seeing some of his more ridiculous antics, the constant COVID infections, the bizarre, um, you know, things he says, the, the, the most recent being this uh, 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 soundbite about um, Venezuelan teenage yes. girls that he, uh, which, which uh, that I would love for you to go into a little, a little more because that's absolutely wild. But I mean, what, what explains his appeal despite the, the kind of, disaster that, that that his first term has been yes uh so bolsonaro actually represents like the mainstream sexist brazilian male so it is not it, it is shocking but it's not as shocking like if you grew up as a woman in brazil and you're dealing with men like him everywhere so uh a lot of these men they do feel very represented by bolsonaro they see themselves uh in him and this actually gives them more freedom to be just like because you know they're being oppressed by the feminist dictatorship under the pt or something like that right so they've been saying things like that um and the role of the fundamentalist religious leaders is quite important important here because they, they appeal to this notion of the traditional nuclear family and the traditional role of women and you know the religious women tend to abide by what bolsonaro say say uh, Bolsonaro says, because, well, you know, my, my husband's like that, you know, men are like that. And uh, so people just tend to take, uh, things that he says lightly in that sense. And a lot of the economic disaster under Bolsonaro with his huge austerity program, just cutting costs across the board. Well, they just say, well, the fault is you guys. The left that said that people should just stay at home during the pandemic. And this is why the, the economy tanked. So there's there's a like uh, an answer like on the tip of the tongue for absolutely everything that Bolsonaro says. They're ready. They have an explanation. So in this particular case here, Bolsonaro was on a on a live podcast, and then he mentioned that he was as president. He was riding his bike in this very poor community in uh in Brasilia, so like in a poor neighborhood called San, San Sebastião. And uh, he stopped and he saw these young girls, 14, 15 year old girls, pretty, pretty looking, pretty dressed. And then um, there was a vibe between them. Right. So the, the term in Portuguese is Pinto un Clima. Uh, that would be like there was a sexual vibe between them. So he asked them if you could go into their house. So he's saying this live on the podcast. A normal thing to do, a normal thing to yes, admit. Yes, right? Involved. And then he gets there, and there's like many more girls just like that, all getting dressed up and pretty and things like that. And then he turns to the podcast, in uh, the, the people in the podcast, and he's like, yeah, so you can see, like, he, they were making their living, right? So that's uh, an euphemism for saying they were prostitutes. Um, but obviously, we're talking here about minors, so it's not even sex workers that we're talking about. We're talking about sexual exploitation. Um, and then he says that, and then, well, we catch that, and we say, look, this is Bolsonaro not only not doing anything about something that he identified as sexual exploitation, uh, but he actually said that there was a sexual vibe between him and these young girls which is a predator behavior, right? And he, this is the guy who says he stands against, you know, sexual exploitation and pedophilia and all, you know, and he's going to protect the children and he's sexualizing young girls. Well, from this, we've heard absolutely everything. So the idea that, well, the age of consent in Brazil is 14. 
So he said they were 14, 15. So this level justification, right? Oh, that, yeah, fine. right. So the yeah. uh, so uh, <laughs> this is the president of Brazil we're talking about. And then we've heard that, well, he actually showed concern when he asked to go into the house, he was concerned. And why didn't he do anything about that? Well, well, because he would like, they, they just say that that's not his direct job, right? But he's denouncing it right now. The other element of this is obviously those were young Venezuelan girls. Um, and Venezuela has played a strong role in this, um, campaign for a while because Bolsonaro usually talks about Venezuela and Nicaragua and sometimes he mentions Chile and Colombia now with Gustavo Petro because the whole idea is that you've got to be afraid of the left taking over in the other countries because Brazil is going to become like that. So his whole point was that if the left takes over, we're going to have all the Brazilian girls be like these Venezuelan girls as well. So there's a level of racism and xenophobia involved here that you see, like, uh, I saw these young Venezuelan prostitutes and do, didn't do anything about them, but I'm here to protect the Brazilian ones. Um, so there's like all these different levels of justifications. And what was pretty bad, actually, and I think here... I'm going to provide a little bit of a criticism of how the left handled this, is that the left took the pedophile angle very quickly, which is complicated because this allowed Bolsonaro room to fight in the electoral court and say that they're accusing me of something they can't prove. And then when we had the opportunity in the uh, public debate on television to call Bolsonaro out, out, out of, on that, we couldn't because the court had already ruled that you can't mention this video and this case because of the way that the PT campaign, uh, you know, claimed that Bolsonaro was this and this and this and that. So there was some level of intervention coming from the court. And the, the problem is like, yes, you couldn't have, you shouldn't have used uh, uh, like called Bolsonaro pedophile. You should have called him perverted. You should have said he sexualizes young girls because those things are directly in the video, right? Uh, so they just went in the extreme direction and this actually gave them um, basically a legal loophole to exploit and kind of kill some of the some of the conversation so sometimes uh bolsonaro says horrible things and we have a problem with strategy within the left and how to approach that because if you approach that in a way that bolsonaro can protect himself uh then it, uh, his narrative is going to stick a lot faster and there's actually a, a bolsonaro the bolsonaro campaign has been running for a couple of weeks now this ad on radio that says that where bolsonaro says Sometimes I express myself badly, but don't let my bad choice of words uh, lead you to make a bad choice for the country. I'm, I'm, I humbly ask you uh, to consider this and I say I'm sorry. So this is already part of how he behaves and it's been normalized for many, like many years now. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of parallels to Trump here, but... but uh, uh... Give me a sense of what what Bolsonaro did over his first term, particularly his economic record. I mean, what what state is the is the country in socioeconomically now after after his term? Uh, so Bolsonaro in the campaign 2018, whenever he got asked about 
economic questions, he just said, ask Paulo Guedes, he's going to be my minister of the economy. Paulo Guedes uh, is in, well, as minister of the economy, he really um, takes after the neoliberal experience of Chile uh, under Pinochet. So the idea is to privatize everything, so, uh, which sometimes they just call like the statize things right so like you take the state away of things and things are going to get better so what they did is that yes um when they got into power there's already these um law uh, like it was like basically a constitutional amendment that was passed under michelle temer who was the interim president after juma who helped to articulate the coup after juma uh, uh against juma Rousseff. and these constitutional amendment basically froze uh, the budget for 20 years, uh, which means that every year it gets worse and worse and worse, especially when we consider that the population is still growing, that we have other needs. Uh, so it's not just a matter of let's, you know, adjust for inflation. There are other things, in fact, that like Brazil needs to invest in education, needs to invest in healthcare. So all of that uh, got frozen. Um, and there, every now and then they make some extra adjustments for, for healthcare and education. But in general, the spending is frozen in Brazil. For Bolsonaro, this is already quite good. It means that part of the, the job was done. So when Paulo Guedes takes over as minister, he does a lot of things to ensure that not only you're going to stick to this austerity budget, but also you're going to, uh, privatize. Uh, where the state is present. So, for example, they privatized the National Utilities Agency. Um, they pressured a lot for the privatization of the national oil company. That they didn't achieve, but we have the sense that if Bolsonaro does get uh, re-elected, uh, they're going to feel very empowered to do that. Um, and uh, one of the things that happened uh, under the, the like the Bolsonaro term with Petrobras is that gas prices went through the roof. So this really impacted the Brazilian uh, people in general. Uh, this is a country where the public transportation system is not very affordable. It's not very good. It really depends, you know, across towns. But in general, we don't have very good experience. So people tend to go and buy cars. This was actually very influenced by the Lula terms, you know, making cars more affordable. And uh, it's one of the things that he's being very, very criticized for by the left rather than investing massively uh, in infrastructure for public transit, working with the states and uh, in at the city level too, was more about getting people to purchase cars. But this impacted uh, people a lot. It also impacted the food costs. Uh, something else that we know is that Bolsonaro worked quite uh, quite close with agribusiness in Brazil. So to increase commodity exports, this has uh, led to more pressure on the um, stocks of Brazilian of Brazilian uh, you know food stocks in general. Uh, basically, we have known. Uh, so food insecurity is also through the roof. We have. Um, more than half of the Brazilian population going through some level of food insecurity, meaning that they're not necessarily going hungry, but they're having to make certain adjustments. This usually means that mothers are going hungry so their children can eat. So they skip a meal a day. So like a mother is keeping a meal to make sure that you have enough for the day. Things like that. Uh, we, we have this situation, for example, when we talk about the environment, Bolsonaro has been known as someone very anti-ecological and, you know, climate change nihilist and things like that. 
Um, I actually uh, co-wrote co a piece uh, last year for Jacobin on this that, well, at the surface, yes, there's a lot of denialism, but there's a lot of green capitalism going on as well. So there's uh, helping private investors going after renewables. Uh, so selling off uh, assets from the national oil company that was going towards renewables. So like even selling uh, to, to investors from abroad. And something else that we know is like they've been setting up schemes for carbon markets as well. So this is a way for agribusiness to make money out of simply abiding by the law. So I'm not going to take away this piece of forest that's in my that's in uh, in my territory here uh, in my property. And I'm going to be compensated for it with the carbon scheme that the government is helping to set up. So this is also part of this. Uh, the situation uh, when it comes to like investment in these particular sectors, for example, universities, they cut costs coming from uh, from um, costs for research and for the scholarships. So the students in the public universities that really dependent for their masters and PhD, and even the professors later on for research funding coming from the government, they either had these um, these investments frozen or completely cut off. And then the minister for research uh, uh, would justify it saying, see, we, we have no money. I have asked the minister of the economy for money for research. We don't have it. So we have to partner with private companies. And this is actually changing. Uh, curricula is changing how people approach research in Brazil because it's becoming market-oriented research. So there are like many different levels for these things. Bolsonaro, obviously, very close to the arms industry. So he made access to firearms a lot more flexible in Brazil to the point that now even the, the armed forces, uh, you know, they say that they have no idea how many firearms are actually in circulation in Brazil right now. Yeah, I mean, comparing it to the election in the US, I mean, I, I personally think that part of the reason why Trump is so strong was because, one, he presided over a, a by, by the point he came into office, a fairly strong economy. Um, but also, he had taken certain steps during the pandemic that, that were actually fairly unprecedented in the, in the history of the US, you know, the eviction ban and, and that kind of thing. I mean, has Bolsonaro done something along those lines um, to sort of shore up his support um, over the past, you know, year or so? Has he kind of uh, poached a few items that you might think of, you know, you might identify these policies usually with the left um, as a way, as a pragmatic way to kind of prevent his uh, standing from slipping. Yeah, so Auxilio Brasil is usually what com comes to mind here. So Brazil is known for conditional cash transfer programs, like the most famous one, Bolsa Familia, was implemented uh, by Lula as part of a bigger program of social welfare. So it wasn't just Bolsa Familia. Bolsa Familias actually became like a standard in the world. The World Bank talks about it, like so try to implement it in other places. And Bolsa Familia was quite responsible for uh, fighting hunger and helping even with the social mobility of women, because the women in the household would be responsible for those cash transfers and making sure that the kids are in school, that the kids are properly vaccinated and things like that. When Bolsonaro took over, uh, one of the measures during the past four years was to actually dismantle the Bolsa Familia program. And then when the pandemic came along and Congress was pressuring for emergency um, help 
for Brazilian, like vulnerable Brazilian uh, families, uh, Bolsonaro actually said, well, 200 reais would be fine, but the Congress uh, increased that to 600 reais or even more, depending on the size of the family and the situation. Uh, and Bolsonaro decided to claim credit for that. But with time, with the polling, we saw that there wasn't direct association between that and people voting for Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro decided to be more aggressive. So with Auxilio Brasil, which is his new version of a Bolsa Familia saying that his is way better because it's a lot more money because of the 600 reais. Um, during this campaign period, they're actually uh, releasing the money faster, earlier, and now they're allow allowing people to borrow money, so credit, against this Auxilio Brasil. So if you receive Auxilio Brasil, now you can get access to credit. The interest rates are absurd. So this is actually quite dangerous, but it's one of the measurements that he's using in terms of like, see, I'm caring for you. And because of the state of the Brazilian economy is so bad with people really not making ends meet, a lot of them are going after these, uh, you know, these loans. And these are loans that are going to have very bad consequences. This is why Lula has been focused, for example, saying, I'm going to renegotiate people's debt. And I'm going to make sure that if you make up to 5,000 reais a, a month, which is about $1,000 a month, which is a lot of money in Brazil. Like, so if we put it like, just so people understand that our, our minimum wage in Brazil is actually about uh let me just like do some quick calculation here it's about like 350 dollars a month right um or actually less than that so like uh, around 300 dollars a month so if you make a thousand dollars a month you're already considered to be doing quite well in brazil and in fact you're not it's actually not that easy to make ends meet with a thousand dollars a month in brazil so lula is saying that well but if you make up to a thousand dollars a month we're not you're not going to pay any income tax anymore so he's trying to, you know, in, introduce these proposals that would have, you know, direct economic benefit um, that could actually be part of like maybe even um, tax reform, progressive tax reform in Brazil, which is quite necessary. Uh, but Bolsonaro is still doing quite well uh, with this idea that, well, what, what happened with the economy here is not my fault. It's the fault of the leftists that pressured the states to close down shops and markets and restaurants and now you're telling me that you know that it, it's it's about me it's not but the, the reality is that well even with the outcome of the pandemic and the next few years if Bolsonaro gets re-elected he's not going to be able to use the pandemic as an excuse it's still going to be the general state of things but we can't afford to just prove Bolsonaro wrong on this we need to stop Bolsonaro now I mean, on that note, what is the uh, campaign messaging of, of, of Lula's campaign? I mean, what, what uh, give me, give us a sense of, of, of the kind of flagship policies that he's proposing. You, you mentioned one right there. What, what other things are kind of the, the bedrock of this particular campaign? Yeah, so Lula has been talking about putting money back into public education and public health care, opening up new schools and daycare. Daycare is something that's been quite frozen 
uh, by, by the Bolsonaro government. So there's like no money, basically no money for new daycare centers and new public schools. A lot of the public schools are basically just falling apart. We're having issues with public schools not having bathrooms, right? So people are worried about unisex bathrooms that, you know, gender ideology and things like, like that, when their children don't have access to bathrooms at all because they're not having access to schools. Uh, Lula is worried actually about, you know, coming up with a task force to make sure that the children who were left behind during the pandemic because of like uh, online teaching, they didn't have uh, access to equipment and internet, that there's a task force to make sure that the student can catch up. Lula has a lot of proposals in terms of the regeneration of the Amazon. Uh, these proposals sometimes sound a little dubious because he's been talking a lot, of, uh, a lot about exploiting the wealth of biodiversity. We're worried that might mean more commodification of, you know, Amazonian uh, um, um, plant species and things like that. So, like, uh, you know, you, you may have heard, like, people in the audience have, may have heard about, like, superfoods like acai berries and things like that. So, like, that comes from the Amazon. So, uh, but still, still quite an improvement coming from Bolsonaro. He's been talking about actually. Uh, getting Brazil back on uh, track when it comes to the to climate change. Uh, his program actually talks about energy transition a lot. Brazil already has quite a big investment in hydropower. So it's considered to be ahead of the curve when it comes to renewables. But hydropower in Brazil has come with, at a cost of ecocide as well. We have the Belo Monte Dam that happened under the PT governments to show uh, for this, basically killing, killing the Xingu River. Uh, but he's actually talking about changing the national oil company Petrobras in something more positioned towards renewables, investing in solar and in, in wind power. Coming from that, uh, there are proposals around Latin American integration, South-South cooperation. So using the public development bank and using uh, the power of the Brazilian economy to actually improve some of the trade routes, especially with, with the neighbors. Uh, there's a lot in the sense that the Brazilian armed forces uh, should be organized for peace and not for intervention, um, which would be maybe self-critique coming from the role of the Brazilian armed forces in the occupation of Haiti, Minusta. That happened under the Workers' Party as well, and it was an absolute disaster. So there might be something positive coming from that of like keeping the armed forces back under control. Um, and also it's a way of Lula like to renegotiate the part of the armed forces that are with Bolsonaro, right? And like the Bolsonaro VP is also from the armed forces. We've had this terrible situation where a lot of the civilian posts within government are now occupied by military personnel. Uh, so maybe Lula will have to do a purge of these personnel from the civilian post because this is something to worry about. Uh, and there are many other things uh, connected to, for example, investing in uh, Brazilian in the Brazilian transportation sector. So uh, and we know that there's pressure, for example, to like for rail networks. So we're not it's a very very large country, so we shouldn't be as reliant on on the airplane industry as we are right now there are a lot of things but one of the one of the problems that we've had is that actually quite stuck with the bolsonaro campaign saying that lula has no proposal 
Like they, they have, like he has no plans. He has only promises. And we've had, like, I, I've had to make videos showing people where to go to find the entire program, like with 121 items coming from Lula's campaign. But again, Lula is partly to blame for this because basically for the, you know, first two thirds of the campaign, he, he kept saying that in my previous government, I did this and this and this and this and that. Instead of saying, I'm going to do this and this and that, and this is a particular thing. I'm going to implement this program, and I'm going to say this. So there's a problem with communication. He actually went on the on Brazil's biggest uh, podcast uh, earlier um, this week here. And then when he got questioned about this, he actually said that, well, when, when you were in government before, people kind of know what you're going to do. Like, this is a terrible answer. This is a terrible answer. So it actually empowers uh, the Bolsonaro campaign to say, see, he has no proposals. And then those of us who are like doing volunteer campaigning, we get really frustrated with this because we're left behind here to like tidy up this mess. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, era to come from from such a seasoned and, and successful politician as, as Lula as well. Um, I, mean, I, I wonder how much of that is just to do with with uh, campaign rust or political rust. I, I mean, looking beyond the the election, um, uh, let's say Bolsonaro loses, uh, fingers crossed. Uh, to what extent is the kind of far right that he represents, the kind of the, this Bolsonarista right? Uh, how entrenched is it now in Brazilian politics and political institutions? It's everywhere. So the point, if Bolsonaro loses, and we hope he loses, uh, Bolsonaro is out, Bolsonarism is still in, to the point that we might actually have to change the name <laughs> and figure it out, you know, like, you know, should we just go for a generic alt-right uh, naming for this? Uh, but they're quite elected within the Senate, within Congress, uh, their narratives and the ideological line is very present on TV, is very present on radio. It's coming out of the mouths of these religious leaders. Uh, it's present in the armed forces. It's present within community leaders. It's in the rich neighborhoods. It's in the poor neighborhoods. It's everywhere. So purging Brazil of Bolsonarismo uh, is going to be way harder than winning this election right now. Because this is something that's made its way to the consciousness of the working class. So to give you a very simple example, I am right now in a very conservative city in Brazil called Goiânia. So it's a very Bolsonarista city. Uh, you go everywhere in the city and you're going to find Brazilian flags. So uh, the joke is that, well, the city is already decorated for the World Cup. No, the Brazilian flags standing for actually Bolsonaro supporters here. And you go into a rich neighborhood, you're going to find these high-rise buildings that, you know, the apartments cost millions of reais. And there are Brazilian flags in almost every window. But then when you look downstairs and you see the, you know, the doorman uh, opening the door to get delivery, food delivered for some of the people who live there, the delivery guy also has a Brazilian flag with the number 22 for Bolsonaro in his bike. Right. So this, like, you're going to find this, you know, imported cars with Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro stickers on them, but you're also going to find the stickers on these cars that are falling apart. 
Um, so this is a city where, you know, people who were walking around with Lula stickers, they've been, um, like they, uh, attacked, like physically attacked by Bolsonaro supporters. So these, it's not just the rhetoric of, rate, uh, of hate, it's also the practice. And the practice has become more and more common. So much that one of the lines that we've been trying to approach with the Lula campaign is that, well, but there is a huge portion of Brazilian society who just wants, well, people just want to live in peace. They want peace. They're, they're, they're sick of this. Uh, and Lula is the one who can provide it, not Bolsonaro. But even if Lula comes in, you know, building the trust again, building solidarity again, um, building this idea that, you know, a little bit of harmony and peace is good. This is going to be quite hard because it, it is ultra politics all around. So I, I wrote articles and published a book to, talking about the ultra, poli ultra politics in Brazil years ago. And we're actually seeing this get into like, like harder and harder every time. So even if Lula comes comes in, getting rid of the state of ultra politics is going to be quite tough. Well, and you mentioned the the practice of political hate. Uh, obviously, Bolsonaro supporters have threatened violence and and, and carried it out. Bolsonaro has threatened the coup. I mean, what is the uh, risk of violence of some sort of January 6th style event uh, in Brazil if Bolsonaro uh, loses this year? It's probable. Um, Bolsonaro has uh, said on a few occasions that, well, if we lose, you know what to do. He says that kind of thing. So we're talking about a country with a rapid increase in Nazi cells ever since Bolsonaro came into power, right? We're, we're talking about a country where we lost control of how many firearms we have in circulation. So everything is possible here. It's going to depend on how the armed forces uh, behave, how they respond to the situation, and it's also going to depend on how the Lula campaign is able to rally people to the streets to celebrate the Lula victory. So if we have like a huge state of celebration, and this is something that I've been trying to like press people on, that if Lula wins on October 30th, everyone needs to go to the streets and be super happy. And it needs to be the beginning of Carnival. And it should be something that like, see, we're here and we're happy and this is what we wanted. And I think that might change things a little. And it should also mean that on January 1st, when Lula comes in officially into power, we need to have a gigantic display of support for him in Brasilia. So like bringing people from other parts of the country, like we need to be quite united on this. So people need to show display of support in order for us not to have to, you know, deal with uh, like something that looks more like of a terrorist attack or, or uh, this level of aggression coming from the far right. But it is possible because Bolsonaro, uh, he provides incentive to this kind of behavior, but he also lost control of some of his base. So these people can do things that we're not aware of. Well, okay, let me ask you finally, 
What are the stakes here? I mean, we've gone a little bit of a sense from what you said, but but really give it to me explicitly. What are the stakes here for, for, for Brazil? I mean, also for the world. I mean, why should people say in New Zealand or the United States or Canada or the UK, why should they be paying attention to what's happening and caring about what's happening um, in this election? For Brazilians, it means that uh, everything that got quite bad in Brazil in the past four years will become much worse. It will be harder to fight it within the next four years. So we will have more hunger. We will have more violence in the streets. Uh, we will have more of uh, even more corruption. Um, the destruction of our biomes is going to go further and the inequalities are going to rise as well. Uh, when we discuss and also like repression, criminalization of social movements has been already the case, right? Like indigenous people have been targeted uh, by Bolsonaro supporters and there, there are projects coming from the far right to actually criminalize communism and that, that level of stuff that leads me into this level of relevance uh, in terms of like the international community, because Bolsonaro is not isolated. Bolsonaro does things sort of like Orban does things in in Hungary, and we know that you know Cast, who was the the far right candidate in Chile last year, showed support for Bolsonaro. So the crisis that's you know quite enmeshed with, within the Chilean state right now that Boric is having to deal with. Well, we know that if Boric fails, the far right is getting well positioned in Chile to to actually um, uh, take over. And if Bolsonaro gets reelected, this is good for them. This is good for them. It, it's good for the far right in Argentina. It is good for the crisis in Peru, but it's also good for the far right as far as New Zealand, as Australia. You gotta like the Bolsonaro uh, Brazilian uh, voters actually could have elected Bolsonaro in the first round in Japan because you have like a lot of Brazilian conservatives there. So like these things make their way into other societies as well. So it's not just the Bolsonaro-Trump relationship, but it's also how the far right is actually connected to the far right uh, in other places. So there is some level of like far right internationalism that we must be aware of and we should be worried about because if you get, Trump didn't get uh, reelected. This was important. This this sent a signal out there. If Bolsonaro gets reelected, it's like, okay, they're doing something that's going to work here. And that provides support. It provides moral support, but also provides techniques. They know what they're doing in terms of uh, spreading hate and misinformation. So this is important. The way that, you know, Modi in India is helping other other um, far-right organizations, you know, spread hate through WhatsApp as well. So we know this is connected. And also, I am going to bring back the point on climate change and the point uh, on the environment, right? Brazil is a very rich country when it comes to biodiversity. We're very privileged in that sense, but we've also been the target of ecological destruction from the beginning because of the style of colonization, because, you know, dependent capitalism and the role of classes like the agribusiness class in Brazil. So if Bolsonaro gets another four years, uh, it's going to be way worse in terms of not just the Amazon, the other biomes too, like Cerrado and Pantanal uh, primarily, uh, but also Caatinga, Pampas, everything in Brazil is going to uh, basically be either turned into a little uh, space of carbon stock 
for agribusiness to trade in money off and everything else is going to be turned into into monocrops, right? And these are monocrops that get exported into other parts of the world and then exported with a lot of uh, chemicals as well because Bolsonaro has been responsible for um, uh, helping uh, with Congress, but also Biden himself to get a crazy amount of chemicals within uh, um, the Brazilian agricultural system in the past years. So this is important even for people who are, you know, buying food in New Zealand that might be connected to crops in Brazil and they're, they might be ingesting poison and in levels that they shouldn't be because of Bolsonaro. Yeah, well, and certainly the, the certification of the Amazon is something that, that, that keeps me up at night. Um, and one would hope is something that, that Lula would, would help reverse uh, uh, if he wins. Uh, that's a terrible way to end on. <laughs> Very depressing. But, you know, I think it's worth remembering the worst thing doesn't always happen. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, on October 30th or, or, or the 31st, seeing you and, and millions of other Brazilians on the streets dancing and celebrating uh, when Lula wins. I think I think uh, a lot of our listeners will as well. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to, to, to explain to us what has been going on in Brazil, particularly for people who, you know, given all the overwhelming news happening in the world, find it difficult to keep up with, with each and everything. Um, I mean, do you, is there anything that you want to you wanna promote or you want to tell people how they can find your work, um, whether on social media or somewhere else? Uh, yes, well, thanks for having me and thanks for uh, the people who like have been listening to this today. It's important to have international support as well, people who are aware of the problems and showing solidarity. Uh, just to help a little, Lula is still uh, the first, uh, in the first position in the polling, but yes, the polling has been wrong before. <laughs> So we're trying to we're trying to be cautious here, and we're still going. We still have ten days, uh, a little less than that, nine days now uh, into campaigning, and we're we're strong. We're not gonna give up. And in terms of me, like people can find me on Twitter. I tweet in like four languages usually, but there's like uh, you can translate things when I'm not tweeting in English. So it's um, S A F B F. And then you can, Tazionzi, the YouTube channel has subtitles in English as well. So you can look into that. And I'm always writing things for Jacobin here and there. Um, so you can always look for Sabrina Fernandez on Jacobin and find my stuff. Brilliant. Well, yeah, thank you again. And I, I think a lot of people can learn from your, your poise in the, in the face of some very uh, tense and, and, and grim kind of uh, electoral prospects. But, but let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, meanwhile, for you, dear listener, thank you again for, for joining us uh, for another episode. Hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you want to check out Sabrina's channel uh, or perhaps uh, share this interview, another one of 200 uh episodes with people that you know in your life um perhaps you want even want to give us some money who knows um uh, always always uh saying that's that's welcome here uh until another week that's it for one or two hundred thanks again for, for joining us relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams You die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you 
You hate nationalism 